Jerusalem, the early 2000s. The traveler meandered through the market in Jerusalem's old city, unencumbered by the threat of explosives. The second intifada, brought on by the breakdown in peace talks between Palestine and Israel, had thrown the city into fear. And even worse, it was keeping away the tourists. But this is how Tahir Shah preferred to travel, through chaos, mostly because it kept hotel prices down. Shah enjoyed a little bit of danger. It came with the territory of being a journalist, travel writer, and adventurer, after all. The merchants of the old town prided themselves on selling curiosities of religious and historical value, the bones of saints, amulets, and splinter of Jesus's cross, to name a few. None of these artifacts were real, of course, they were forgeries. But that's exactly what Tahir Shah, a man of British and Afghani descent, was looking for. He prided himself on going to interesting locales and finding the most outrageous souvenirs. Shah was also a fan of the Arab masterwork, The 1001 Nights. So when he saw a sign proclaiming Alibaba's tourist shop, he had to take a peek. Inside the shack were all the baubles, bits, and ends you're probably picturing in your head right now, complete with a seedy, if not affable, merchant, Alibaba himself. Probably not his real name. But Shah was amused by all of it, the pageantry, the audacity, until he saw the old map hanging on the wall. Now that, that really caught his interest. It was hand-drawn and appeared to be quite old. When Shah pointed it out, the shifty merchant reluctantly told him that it had been passed down in his family for generations, and was, allegedly, a treasure map leading to the whereabouts of none other than King Solomon's legendary gold mines. Now, Tahir Shah was not easily swayed by dubious artifacts, but this one tugged at his heartstrings. You see, Shah belonged to a rather unique family that you might say was destined for adventures of biblical proportions, or more fittingly, Quranic. Shah was the descendant of Afghan nobility with a lineage traced back to none other than the Prophet Muhammad. Spirituality, theology, poetry, mysticism, and indeed the search for lost treasure were quite literally in the DNA. And Shah's father, the great writer and poet Idris Shah, as well as his grandfather, Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, had both searched for the lost mines of the Hebrew king, to no avail. After haggling down a price, Ali Baba eventually relented and handed over possession of the heirloom map. Shah was enthralled. Perhaps this was a sign to take up the mantle and finish the task that his father and grandfather had set out to accomplish. But when Shah went back to Alibaba's the next day to ask for more information, he found a copy of the same exact map hanging on the wall. He had been duped. But this didn't stop him, nor has it stopped hundreds of other wide-eyed adventurers throughout the centuries who have gone off in search of the legendary king's fortunes. And even though the map was a fraud, it gave Shah a lead, one that matched up with what his own father had once theorized, that the treasure was not in the vicinity of Israel or Arabia, but somewhere in Ethiopia. However, this theory came with a warning. Shah's father had cautioned him that going off in search of King Solomon's mines came with a terrible price, misfortune. 
Indeed, the legends surrounding the lost gold of King Solomon are as numerous as the curses supposedly lying in wait for those foolish enough to go looking for it. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold, besides that which came of the merchants, and of the traffic of the traders, and of all the kings of the mingled people, and of the governors of the country. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, and overlaid it with the finest gold. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. First Book of Kings, chapter 10, verse 14. In the Hebrew Bible, the individual known as Solomon is described in the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. His reign was anywhere between 970 to 931 BCE. Outside of the Bible, there are only a few attestations to his rulership. Solomon was the son of King David and Queen Bathsheba. He was supposedly born as a gesture of forgiveness sent by God after David repented for the sin of adultery. David's health began to decline shortly before Solomon turned 15 years old, and after an intense period of inter-palace strife surrounding the royal succession, Solomon ascended the throne and took steps to bring his court into equilibrium. He was said to have been very interested in foreign realms outside the kingdom of Judah and made efforts to expand trade routes to these distant lands. But Solomon's greatest asset was said to be his wisdom. It's said that God himself appeared to Solomon one night in a dream and asked the king to reveal his greatest wish. Solomon asked not for conquest or wealth or material gain, but wisdom, which pleased God tremendously. The gift was granted, and Solomon soon became known as a prudent and compassionate figure known for settling disputes with cunning solutions. Perhaps the most famous example of his intellect is the story of his judgment over the legitimacy of a child and its mother. The story goes that two women came to the king's court one day, each claiming to be the mother of a child. Either woman had material value to gain by proving maternity. After some considerable thought, Solomon decided that he would tear the child in two and give either woman the other half. One woman accepted this offer on the spot. But the other cried out in horror and said that she would rather the other woman take the child than see it brutally dismembered. This is what Solomon had planned for, as it was the only way to know which woman truly cared for the infant and was the right mother. There is another famous account of Solomon, this one concerning a mysterious and beguiling figure known as the Queen of Sheba. 
After hearing of the king's power and intellect, she traveled to his court and put him through several tests of intelligence, all of which he passed. For Solomon, the intrigue was mutual, and he bestowed upon the Queen of Sheba all manner of lavish gifts. However, some interpretations of their encounter hint of more romantic interest. Solomon, to put it bluntly, got around. He himself had many wives, though to his credit, he was said to have treated them all especially well, granting them temples for their respective deities. It was this later fact that may have doomed him. According to some interpretations, Solomon's lust for women and the tendency to dabble in their religions angered God, who cursed his kingdom into decline. One of Solomon's other great achievements was creating the first temple to God in Jerusalem, which is now sadly lost to time. More intriguing, however, and a great source of legend, was just how he managed to build such an architectural marvel in a time when engineering was relatively minimal. Some say that Solomon wasn't merely a king, but a sorcerer, who managed to create a ring in which he could control demons, or as Muslims interpret, the more ambiguously defined jinn. In the Quran and other Islamic folklore, the jinn, from which we get the English-derived genie, are said to be spirits born of a smokeless fire, somewhat like demons, but more morally complicated. In some accounts, Solomon sealed these demonic servants in vessels or jars of brass to be called upon when needed. Similar stories appear in the accounts of the lost city of Aram, the so-called Atlantis of the Sands, which I've spoken about before on this podcast. The passage I read at the start of this segment attests to Solomon's riches, which were plenty. Some accounts say that Solomon housed the Ark of the Covenant. Others describe his throne as being built from automatons, which the king himself designed. There are verses devoted to all of the gold and finery under Solomon's command, as well as the many gifts and offerings sent to him as tribute from allied kingdoms. But at some point, people looked at a map of the Holy Land and said, well, gee, there's not actually a lot of naturally occurring gold there, which meant that all of that wealth had to come from somewhere else. But where? The Bible only mentions two primary sources for Solomon's gold, lands or kingdoms called Ophir and Tarshish. And if either of those names sound unfamiliar to you, then you're not alone. Look at any map of the earth and you won't find them located in the Middle East or anywhere else for that matter. Scholars assume they were local names or mispronunciations of actual kingdoms in the vicinity of Judah. The thing about lost treasure is that sometimes it takes a while before anybody realizes there's anything missing at all. And in the case of King Solomon's wealth, there really wasn't a whole lot documented about there ever being one specific stockpile of gold or valuables. People never really considered that all that gold had to come from at least one or more sources. That was until 1885, when a blockbuster of a novel seized the imaginations of the English-speaking world and was so wildly successful that it invented a whole new literary genre. Let's talk about its author. Born on June 22, 1856, Henry Ryder Haggard was a child overlooked by his father probably because he was one of ten children belonging to Sir William Maybaum Ryder Haggard, a knighted barrister with high expectations. Henry was assumed to follow in the footsteps of his father, but the man himself seemed hell-bent on making these goals difficult for his son at every turn, cutting off his private school funding and generally being unsupportive. 
Henry also had the spirit of an adventurer, someone who was fascinated by the world, and more so, the unusual. When he failed to meet his father's expectations, he was exiled to South Africa to work as an unpaid assistant to a lieutenant governor. If you know anything about the British Empire, then you know that they had their hands in several other people's pies, and the continent of Africa was no exception. Indeed, European colonization had cut up a diverse and sprawling landscape of thousands of different nations and languages, often resulting in the kingdoms of Europe using these colonies as proxy wars. In South Africa, the tension lay between the Dutch and the English, Combined with several other indigenous kingdoms, such as the Zulu, trying to defend their civilization, the region known as South Africa was a powder keg. This is the environment that Henry Ryder Haggard found himself navigating at a very young age. Henry had hoped to get back to England to marry the love of his life, Lily Jackson, but his father refused the proposal. Though I won't spend a whole lot of time on H. Ryder Haggard, his life was complicated and at turns quite tragic. Lily eventually contracted syphilis from her philandering husband, and though Haggard would go on to find a companion in Mariana Louisa Margiston, they would lose their firstborn son, at only 10 years old, to measles. Haggard would return to Britain, having seen a part of the world largely misunderstood and unknown to the English. He reluctantly fell back into his law studies and went on to become a lawyer, but it was apparent that his real passions lay in writing, which he dabbled in frequently. As word of his pursuit got around, Henry's brother challenged him to a low sum wager, with the award of five shillings if he could produce a book on the same level as Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Henry, who wrote under the name H. Ryder Haggard, took him up on the offer. Reportedly, the end work was a quick turnaround, and though Haggard initially found trouble finding a publisher, billboards in central London soon proclaimed his debut novel, King Solomon's Minds, as the most amazing book ever written. That's up for debate, but let's just say that Haggard did end up winning that bet. Because of Haggard's experiences in South Africa, the novel presented a setting that the average English person probably hadn't seen before. The story is a bit of a swashbuckler, with its protagonist, great white hunter, Alan Quartermain, embarking on a journey to look for an aristocrat's missing brother, who has gone off in search of none other than King Solomon's mines. Along the way, they are joined by a tribal prince in exile who leads them to a hidden kingdom standing at the forefront of the entrance to the sealed mines. The book is considered the genesis of the lost world literary genre, which is categorized by adventurous epics surrounding the discovery or rediscovery of hidden civilizations in previously inaccessible locations. This included Haggard's semi-sequel, She, A History of Adventure, inspired by the real-life rain queens of South Africa, which I've also mentioned on this podcast. There is a lot to unpack about both the genre and this book in particular, which were both byproducts of colonialism. While Haggard's portrayals of the Black protagonists in King Solomon's mind were considered progressive by the time period standards, the racism and paternalism present in the book are comically absurd. That said, it makes for an interesting story. And it also brought the idea of there being a physical location of King Solomon's wealth to the modern imagination. Now, in the book, the location of the mines is in South Africa, and its priceless treasure contained therein are diamonds. In the real world, the mines have been hypothesized as existing anywhere from the Middle East to India to North Africa, but there are numerous challenges when it comes to locating a viable source. The lands that the Book of Kings mention by name, Tarshish and Ophir, are not easily locatable. 
Mostly because nobody knows what countries or kingdoms the writers of the Books of Kings were referencing. When it comes to Tarshish, the book speaks of King Hiram of the very real Phoenician civilization, who facilitated these exports and imports of precious metals. However, this raises a red flag, as historians aren't quite certain the Phoenicians had any involvement in that part of the world during that period of history. But there are more mentions of this lost locality, which pop up in the works of Babylonian writers as well as the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Both mention Tarshish as a place on or near the Mediterranean coast, perhaps even an island. Ancient Spain had also been considered a viable theory, and the country does have a lot of goldsmithing that extends way back. Unfortunately, so many places with similar names, such as Tarsus, exist or existed in that relative region of the world, so it's hard to pin down a perfect candidate. I also think it's worth noting that the Book of Kings mentions Tarshish as where Solomon's gold was acquired, not necessarily where it was mined. The second city or nation named in the Solomon epic is Ophir. The Book of Kings says King Solomon received a cargo from Ophir every three years, which consisted of gold, silver, sandalwood, pearls, ivory, apes, and peacocks. One would think that this list of procurements gives us a few tantalizing clues to its whereabouts, as you would just need to find the country that has sandalwood, peacocks, apes, and ivory sitting side by side. Though it doesn't narrow the search too much, treasure hunters have focused specifically on the animal portion of this list. Peacocks are usually found in India, as well as sandalwood and elephant ivory for that matter. So for a while, India, Bangladesh, or Sri Lanka were considered possible candidates for biblical Ophir. Like Tarshish, Ophir is mentioned sporadically outside biblical context, which means, at the very least, it was probably not just the author's poetic invention. It was likely a place that people of that time period would have recognized, just as you and I would be familiar with a place called China or Australia. Like Tarshish, the Phoenicians allegedly played a role in importing gold from Ophir to ancient Jerusalem. Though their presence in that region of the world is disputed, the Bible does get one thing right. The Phoenicians were the maritime giants of the Mediterranean, managing trade routes that stretched from the Middle East all the way to India. The problem with India being Ophir is that, while there are a few gold mines in India, the country hasn't been known for its high volume output. In the 1500s, an archaeological discovery by Portuguese colonists presented a new theory. In 1531, explorers from Mozambique uncovered a sprawling, ruined fortress that the local Shona people referred to as the Great Zimbabwe. It had belonged to a culture that had flourished thousands of years ago, had made use of gold mines in the area, and traded both this metal as well as ivory. While these mines had since been depleted, the explorers wondered if Great Zimbabwe was in fact the Ophir of the Bible. Since then, archaeologists have debunked this possibility. Zimbabwe is a bit farther outside the more established trade routes that would have led back to Jerusalem. Also, the Great Zimbabwe civilization existed at least a couple thousand years before the generally agreed upon time in which the Hebrew king was said to have ruled. Despite this, the African continent became a more attractive theory for adventurers in search of the lost mines. In fact, some argued that the word Ophir might have been a corruption of the Roman or Arabic names that eventually became Africa, once synonymous with just the northwestern part of the continent. And if you were to take all that is known about both King Solomon's material assets and personal relationships, then there is one country in particular that feels like it could be a strong contender for the whereabouts of the missing mines, Ethiopia. 
At least this is what British explorer Frank Hayter thought when he journeyed to Ethiopia in 1925. Like the fictional Alan Quartermain of H. Ryder Haggard's novel, Hayter was himself a great white hunter who took expeditions on the thrill of capturing wild beasts. Probably not a great guy by modern standards, but for all intents and purposes of the story, he gives us what is quite possibly one of the only first-hand accounts of King Solomon's fortunes. Ethiopia was once commonly referred to as Abyssinia, as it was thought to be an endless abyssal land. Hayter was tasked by the London zoos to find and collect baboons, but he ended up discovering so much more, possibly more than he bargained for. After braving vicious jackals, miserable swamps, and ambushes by the Danakil tribesmen protecting their land, Hayter finally got his baboons, but not without losing several men along the way. But in Ethiopia, or at least that region and at that time anyway, baboons were considered sacred beings, and when a local monk saw Hayter rounding them up for personal gain, he placed a curse on the hunter. Whilst at sea, a terrible storm broke open the baboon cages and sent the ship into a panic, though the vessel did eventually reach its destination. Returning to London, curse or no, Hayter took stock of his travels and began writing about the fabulous gold of Ethiopia. He wrote, There is little doubt that Abyssinia is the real emporium of Ophir. Eventually, Hayter's dark path would intersect with a modern expedition but more on that later. For now, we're going to move on from ancient Jerusalem to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is perhaps one of the oldest and most fascinating countries in the entire world, with a history both noble and tragic. It is a place where Christianity, Judaism, and Islam have cohabitated, producing some truly breathtaking works of religious art. While the country's terrain and borders have shifted over the centuries, it was once a powerful empire and for most of its history, it was ruled by several different dynasties and kings, many who traced their origins to its ancestral emperor, King Menelik I. But here's where things get interesting. Menelik I is thought to be the son of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. To put it lightly, the dynastic lineage of the great nation is something akin to a biblical spin-off. In the accounts of the country's most important text, the 700-year-old Kebra Nagast, the land of Sheba was in fact Ethiopia, and the queen herself had a name, Empress Makeda, who journeyed to Jerusalem when she heard of Solomon's power. King Solomon found an equal in her, as she was exceptionally clever as well, and they had a passionate love affair. But as Makeda had her own kingdom to rule, she could not stay. She brought back more than treasures and gifts, however. She also produced a son, Menelik I, who would go on to found what is historically referred to as the Solomonic Dynasty in Ethiopia. Most Ethiopians consider this account canonical, but how it intersects with the treasure of Solomon's mines is somewhat up for debate. This theory rides on the idea that Queen Makeda her immediate predecessors or her descendants were the ones sending gold, ivory, peacocks, and apes to Solomon. While peacocks are somewhat of a rarity in that part of the world, they do exist in the Congo, so there is always the chance they were acquired and bred in ancient Sheba. And Ethiopia has always maintained a very prominent gold mining industry, stretching back to ancient times. If gold was unavailable in Jerusalem's immediate vicinity, Ethiopia was, logically, one of the nearest places to procure it. In fact, some historians speculate that Ethiopia may have been the oft-mentioned kingdom of Punt found in ancient Egyptian writings. 
Here, Queen Hatshepsut and her descendants were said to have procured ivory, gold, silver, incense, and the same wild animals as Solomon's expeditions. Though there's plenty written about King Solomon's mines, there haven't been many expeditions to try and find them, probably because the evidence for their continued existence is so flimsy. Shockingly enough, only in the last 10 years or so has someone produced an actual travelogue explicitly devoting itself to the quest. And that someone is Tahir Shah, the writer and professional adventurer I mentioned at the top of the story. Shah documented his mission in the appropriately titled book, In Search of King Solomon's Mines, which is as much a snapshot of modern Ethiopia as it is a real-life treasure hunt. I highly recommend giving it a read. While Alibaba's dubious treasure map didn't offer any leads, Shaw ended up creating his own map by combining historical research, eyewitness documentation, religious text, and local lore. At the outset of his journey, Shaw unfurled a map of Ethiopia and placed seven stones at strategic points, places where the mines may yet rest. These were as follows. Afar, the ancestral home of the Danakil, a tribe once known for taking the testicles of their enemies. Harar, the ancient walled city, which is said to be protected by hyenas. Another stone touched the mysterious mountain range on the border of Eritrea, where Frank Hayter supposedly witnessed treasure with his own eyes. Gondar and Lalabella, both places tied to the dynasty of Solomon, were other points of interest. Finally, Shah settled on more pragmatic options, two mining pits still in operation. The book itself reads like a real-life Indiana Jones chronicle, complete with all the trappings. Dangers, both man-made and natural, capture and daring escapes, assistance from humble sources, and even touches of the supernatural. Starting in the capital city of Addis Ababa, Shah befriended a friendly, knowledgeable, and religiously devout taxi driver named Samson Johannes, who he hired as his sidekick of sorts. From there, a whirlwind tour took them through Ethiopia's cities and countryside. I'll let you read the book yourself, but for the sake of the episode, I've touched upon a few key moments related to the lost treasure in question. Gold is indeed a plentiful resource in Ethiopia, as it can be found closer to the surface of the earth than most places. Mining operations are carried out legally, sanctioned by state-approved corporations, or illegally. Both types of mines tend to keep their workers in subhuman conditions, with cavens, disease, and poor living conditions running rampant. Though Ethiopia is indeed a beautiful country with a hospitable people, poverty is drastic throughout many of the rural areas. Infrastructure commissioned by the last king before the communist revolt has not been retouched since then. Shaw writes of vehicles breaking down constantly and people having to walk miles between villages to make a livelihood. It's a bleak picture, and a stark reminder that gold has a price beyond the monetary. From the outset, Shah is confident that a stockpile of Solomon's treasure remains hidden somewhere in Ethiopia, in either the form of a sealed mine shaft, still rife with gold, or a cave. Of course, Middle Eastern literature is full of amazing stories about hidden treasures in booby-trapped or cursed caverns. This is what Shah observed when he entered the city of Diradawa, which had a local legend of a nearby cave said to have been inhabited by a hermit and possibly full of gold. Though Samson and Tahir went off to the cave to try and find the allegedly hidden passage, all they ended up finding is, quite literally, crap of both human and bat variety. The cave, it turns out, was being used as an ad hoc sewer by a nearby refugee encampment. 
The second destination is the ancient city of Harar, which very well could have been ripped from the pages of the 1001 Nights. A walled city, Harar is known for its nightly feeding of hyenas, who are both respected and feared. The hyena men, tasked with the ritual feeding, are valued for their dangerous labor, as it is said that if the hyenas are not given their nightly tribute, they grow hungry for the taste of children instead. These creatures are also said to guard Solomon's treasure, and are not actually hyenas at all, but the transfigured jinn that the wise king was said to employ and control, even going so far as to outfit them with jewelry. Though Tahir Shah decided that there was no substantial leads to be gleaned in Harar, he did end up hearing some curious local rumors. Hunters who go into the fields and kill hyenas, it is said, sometimes discover the fallen beasts with golden earrings embedded in their ears. Tahir and Samson's adventures also took them up a mountain monastery accessible only by rope hoist, where the priests speak of hidden gold that they are wary of outsiders trying to find. The treasure hunters also passed in the lands of the Danakil, who have forsaken their painful trophy-collecting days in exchange for carrying blocks of salt across the desert to be sold at market. The patriarch of a Danakil clan even told Tahir Shah that his ancestral lands were once gold fields, until God punished the greed of his people by transforming it all into salt instead. And thus, the Danakil continued to treat the mineral as something far more precious than what meets the eye. Shah visited each location where he had placed a stone, and each time, he felt that he had brushed up against the possibility of locating the mines. He turned, at last, to the text of Frag Hader, who he believed was the closest any human since Solomon's time had come to seeing the treasure firsthand. After returning to Ethiopia, eager for adventure and wealth, Hader became a prospector with an insatiable, obsessive appetite for gold. So hungry was he for the mineral that the locals dubbed him the Father of Madness. One wonders if the curse laid on him by the monk had begun to wreak its havoc. He believed there was, hidden perhaps beneath the old monasteries, networks of ancient tunnels that supplied the Queen of Sheba, or Makeda, with her gold, the same as Solomon's empire. On the border of Eritrea, deep in the wilds, Hader came to a fearsome mountain said by the locals to be haunted by the devil, Tulu Walel. As Hader explored the mountain, he discovered something odd, stone doors embedded in the rock, clearly carved by man. He was able to squeeze by or otherwise surpass one of these stone blockades and discovered what appeared to be a mine shaft leading deeper into the mountain, accompanied by a subterranean river. And at the end of this long, cavernous passage was, supposedly, a stockpile of gold and other treasures, none of which Hader, or Tahir Shah for that matter, describes at any length. In any case, Hader was unable to remove the gold for himself, as the underground river suddenly began to flood and he had to retreat. When he later returned to the mountain to unearth the gold, he found the passages had been mysteriously shut tight, as if someone, or something, was aware of his trespass. Hader's health would rapidly degenerate, and by the age of 30, he remarked how old he looked. Was it a result of his own greed? Or was it something more supernatural? 
Tulu Walel was Tahir Shah's last stop on his arduous but enlightening tour of Ethiopia, and by far it proved his most challenging encounter. The farmers scattered in the shadows of the distant mountain all believed it to be cursed. Men had gone up there to gather wood or honey and had come back to find their pregnant wives had either lost their children or they had been stricken with madness. Some, of course, said it was the abode of the source of all evil itself. Still, others believed that there was indeed a fabulous treasure hidden within its caves, though none were quite sure where it had come from. When one elderly villager spoke to Shah, recalling a crazed white man who had lived near the mountain many years ago, the British adventurer knew he had found the right place. He was certain the stories about misfortune and mysticism were just hearsay. Then, the night before his departure, Shah's kerosene lantern suddenly exploded in his guest's hut, nearly setting the roof on fire. Shah's companion, Samson, believed it was a warning that they should not proceed. But Tahir Shah had come too far, and much like Hader before him, he was captivated by the promise of riches. As Shah, Samson, and their team of navigators ascended to Lu Walel, a freezing monsoon appeared out of nowhere, making for an excruciating trek up the mountain. Shah pushed on, even when his companions protested. He knew that Hader had discovered the entrance to the cave on the mountain's east slope, and this is where he would investigate. Though the weather did lighten, morale was still low. Finally, as evening came, Samson triumphantly shouted to the others that he had found an entrance to a secret cavern. Shah couldn't believe it. Here it was, an actual tunnel entrance, large enough to fit through, just as Hader described. It had likely been man-made, or at least modified. Shah and his companions shuffled into the tunnel, in awe of what awaited them at the end. But, about 20 feet into the shaft, the passage abruptly ended. There was only solid rock. No door. No vault. No treasure. Though Tahir Shah would return to the cursed mountain again, he wouldn't get as far. A hailstorm and low spirits put an end to his second attempt, much as had been the case with his predecessor, Hader. Since then, there have been no recorded attempts at excavating or exploring to Luwalel. Did Frank Hader ever really uncover a cave of riches in the heart of the mountain? Or were he and Shaw blinded by the all-consuming thrill of gold? Or did King Solomon's demons do their master's bidding? using their manipulation of the elements and illusions to keep the treasure safely hidden until, well, who knows? In the 1930s, an archaeological survey in Israel's Tinma Valley uncovered evidence of a copper mining operation. It was dated to roughly around the time that historians generally agree corresponded with the reign of Solomon. Thus, the lead archaeologist, Nelson Gluck, claimed that this was the real location of the biblical king's mines. But since then, further evidence pointing to Egyptian or Edomite control of the mines disputes this theory. 
We are no closer to uncovering the truth behind the fabled source of King Solomon's treasure than we were a thousand years ago. It's a bit like trying to find a golden needle in a haystack. Complicating theories even more is that some historians speculate whether or not Solomon actually existed at all. Outside of the Bible, there is scant evidence of a thriving civilization during what is widely considered a Hebraic Dark Age. Certainly, an era ruled by a leader renowned for his wisdom should turn up a bit more documentation, but outside of the Bible, there isn't much. What we do have on hand shows us that the region known as Judah was sparsely populated, not so much a thriving city centered around a temple, but a small collection of villages, a city-state at best. Still, some historians do believe that both Kings David and Solomon did rule over this region of the world. However, their power and wealth, as well as the territory they presided over, was exaggerated. There is also a far more logical conclusion to be made, presuming the mines did exist. They're probably completely stripped of gold after centuries of use. Gold is a finite resource, and when there are no more veins to be unearthed, then mining pits are opened up elsewhere. If the mines of Solomon or the Queen of Sheba produce as much output as speculated, then there's no reason why they would have suddenly been boarded up, buried, or even lost to begin with. Just because King Solomon's empire fell, the people of Ophir or Tarshish would have continued selling their gold to other nations. Unless the people who controlled the mines were invaded and conquered, which is of course entirely possible. As for the treasures of Solomon's court, those have probably been lost over the eras as well. We know that the Romans conquered Judah and stripped it of its wealth during the invasion. Where those objects of renown ended up is anybody's guess. Even if the mad miner, Frank Hayter, did discover something valuable in the caverns of Tulu Wallel, there's nothing indicating it was specifically part of Solomon's hoard. All those legends across Ethiopia might just be wishful thinking, ascribing a cache of wealth to a great king, with no other basis than, well, he had a lot of gold at one point. It's a bit of a letdown, but that isn't to say that the story itself is meaningless. This may be a case of self-fulfilling treasure. No actual goal to be found anywhere, but plenty of literature and money to be made off the eternal search. And these so-called curses of Solomon's goal driving otherwise decent men to madness might be rooted more in the psychological than the paranormal. Perhaps this insatiable greed was the real danger that Tahir Shah's father and grandfather cautioned him about. Perhaps this is what ultimately led to the downfall of a great and wise king as well. We tend to obsess over the things we can't have, and we always want more. And what greater desire is there than to try and find the unfindable? Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to make me your king, you can do so by rating and reviewing Relic and Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream this podcast. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod or email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. You can also catch my stream on Twitch by searching Treasure Hunter Maxwell. Next time, the Viking sagas tell of many heroes, villains, and identities in between some of whom hid their plunder among Iceland's natural beauty. In the next episode of Relic, we explore some of these legends and see where the truth 
lies buried. The adventure continues. And that's it. 